Father in heaven, again, we just want to come before you and pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to be here in our midst. Help our minds to be clear and focused. Give us energy and, and just uh, clarity, Lord. That we might see your, your will, that you would impress it upon our hearts, and that we would be able to cooperate with you in this great work of winning other souls to you. So bless our time now, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to uh, just make a quick comment before we actually get started. And that is uh, on the area of Bible memorization. Uh, I know probably some of you have tried memorizing before. And maybe you've had uh, some difficulties and not been successful. I'd just like to say that two things. First of all, good methods will make a huge difference. Learning how to retain a verse, how to remember references, how to meditate on Scripture. There's a lot of principles that will help you to be successful. And I don't have time to go into all of those now. I want to encourage you to get in one of the fast teams here, a survival kit or something. And, uh, or go to our website, you can take our Bible memory course there, get some basic principles. The, the techniques will make a, a huge difference on your success. In Ecclesiastes 10.10, it says, If the iron be blunt, and he do not wet the edge, then he must put two more strength. But wisdom is profitable to direct. Uh, updated 20th century, 21st century language. If your axe is dull, it's going to take more effort to chop down a tree. So you sharpen the axe, that's a smart thing to do. Get a better tool. And so better methods will give you greater results. But the second thing I want to add about Scripture memory, just very quickly again, is uh, don't expect it to be easy at first. Now, some of you may have a great memory, and it may just come naturally with no problem. That's great, but not all of us have that ability. When I first began memorizing, my memory was very poor, and it's still not really very good in most things. But I applied myself to memorizing scripture, and gradually it became easier. I was part of a discipleship team at a university I was attending, and every week I'd have two verses I was assigned, and I would have my verse pack, and I'd be cramming them, trying to get them to stick in my head long enough to quote them, because I knew when I got to the team meeting, I was going to have to pair up with a partner and quote my verses. And that's what we do in our FAST program, too. It, you know, without that kind of accountability, I... I probably wouldn't have got very far, but it was like this for week after week and month after month, probably for four or five months. I just, I couldn't seem to get the verses to stick. I would work at it, and I'd basically get them there, but it wasn't easy. And I was beginning to think, you know, maybe this just isn't going to work for me. Maybe my memory is just too bad. It's just not hardly worth the trouble. But I remember I'd be sitting in church after a while, and the preacher would be preaching a sermon, and he'd refer to some verse, and boom, all of a sudden it popped into my mind. I said, hey, I know that verse. Or I'd be studying in my devotion, I'd be reading some passage, and another verse I'd memorized several weeks before popped into my mind that all of a sudden shed light on that passage I was studying. Or I'd be praying, or, uh, you know, and a promise would come to my mind, or I'd be faced with a decision, and, and some verse would pop in. And I began to have these experiences more and more. And, you know, once it began to happen, I began to get excited about it. I said, wow, this is really kind of cool. This is kind of neat. It was like God was actually beginning to speak to me. I could hear his voice speaking to me through the word. And uh, once that change happened, all of a sudden I could not get enough scripture. And I began memorizing, uh, 
not just two verses a week, but three or four or five verses a week. Pretty soon I was memorizing a verse a day. And at that time I had a job where I could memorize while I was working at the same time. And I'd be memorizing sometimes two or three verses a day. And just, I was into the Word of God. And, you know, and I think back now, what would have happened if I had quit after five months and said, I've been doing this for five months, it's not working, it's not sti- sti- sticking, and I just gave up. Well, you know, I would have lost all those verses I've learned ever since, and even the ones I had learned up to that point would probably be gone by now. That was 20 years ago. And so don't expect it to be easy at first. Use good methods, use good tools, but realize it's going to take some effort. It's not that our memories are bad, they're just out of shape. And it's going to take some time to discipline them and, and whip them back into shape. And, then, and pretty soon, they'll start working fine for you. So if it's, you haven't been successful, use some good methods, give it another try, and stick with it for... Well, till the Lord comes, just keep working at it, and, uh, and they'll start to stick. I, I, I can promise you. God's not going to ask us to do anything and not supply the power that we need to be successful. He doesn't promise it's going to be easy, but he does promise we'll have success. Uh, I'd like to talk about evangelism uh, for this last session, and uh, I've already gone over a little bit, but uh, this is an important topic. I have to... Sh- confess that this isn't an area that I'm particularly strong in. Now, I've done a few evangelistic series. I've seen a few people baptized. I've given Bible studies off and on over the years. But most of my adult life, I've invested in this area of training and discipling because I saw no one was doing that. It seemed like no one was doing that as I was coming up as a young man. And so I poured my life into that, and I've been doing training and teaching and and sending out Bible studies for, for years. But in the back of my mind... I was thinking something like this. You know, if we're really going to be effective at finishing the work, it's not going to be enough just to train our own members to be more spiritual. We're going to have to train our members to be effective in evangelism. There's got to be a way that the average church member can be effective in winning souls on a consistent basis, not just once in a blue moon, but consistently bringing people into the church. And, uh, and I remember as a young man, I remember going up to my pastor and saying, uh, Pastor, I would really like to learn how to win souls. I mean, I know how to give Bible studies. And I know some of the basics, but is there anyone in this entire conference, I won't say what conference it was, is there anyone in this entire conference that you know of that is consistently winning souls to Christ? Isn't every year they're bringing in two or three people, some, some, just a, a layperson that's doing that? And he said, you know, there's not a single person in this entire conference that I know of that's doing that. And uh, that was a long time ago. We have... AFAX and AFCO, I mean, uh, AFCO and Arise and Mission College, and there's a lot of Bible workers out there, but, you know, still, as I've gone around from church to church, most churches are just not really growing very rapidly. And if they do, it's usually uh, other Adventists that are moving in because they got a good speaker or something. We're just not really winning a lot of people. And so for 20 years, I've been kind of looking, saying, Lord, where, where is someone that's actually doing this? When I look in the New Testament church, I say the New Testament church was growing by leaps and bounds. The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Acts chapter 2, you have 3,000 souls. Acts chapter 4, you have 5,000 men. That's 5,000 families. Not 5,000 people, probably 10 or 15,000 people. By the time you get to Acts chapter 5, it says they had filled Jerusalem with their doctrine. I mean, everywhere the gospel is. Just in three chapters. And, and I, I wonder, what, why isn't this happening today? Well, I'd like to share with you what I've become more and more convicted about. You know how things just sort of stew in the back of your mind for a long time? It's like, something's not right. I don't understand this. Why is it not working? 
And all of a sudden something clicks, and you say, I think this is the answer. Well, I'd like to share with you uh, something that the Lord has really burdened me with and put on my heart. And, uh, and I'll tell you a little story. I've actually found the church that's doing this. For after 20 years, I finally found an Adventist church where the average church member is consistently winning souls. I found it. I'll tell you about it a little bit later. It's an amazing story. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And while you're turning there, let me just uh, make another comment. When you think of evangelism, most people think of two methods. One method we talked about a little bit this morning, and that is public evangelism. And as a church, we have some of the best DVDs and uh, you know, all the programs and, and good speakers. And, and we have just wonderful brochures. We have powerful tools for public evangelism. And then the other thing that pops into our mind is personal Bible studies. Uh, knocking on doors, doing a survey, find someone that's interested in the Bible study. We sit down in their home, and week after week, we go through uh, some set of lessons, you know, whatever, historicals or whatever set we happen to be using. But there's, there's a problem with both of these methods. Uh, for one thing, let's talk about public evangelism for a minute. Public evangelism is expensive. It's exhausting. You can only run it once or twice a year, and that's about all your church members can, can handle. And what I've noticed, one of the problems with public evangelism is that it tends to encourage a spectator mentality. Like, we're going to come and, and we're going to support the meetings just by our attendance. And we should, right? But it's like the way we do evangelism is sit in a meeting. It's like it's the wrong, something's wrong with that picture. I mean, we need to be more active than that. That just doesn't quite cut it. And, and so I look at public evangelism, and it just doesn't seem to be the engine that is going to mobilize the vast majority of our members. Maybe some people will get called to that. Great. But most of us, that's probably not what we're going to be doing. Uh, and with personal Bible studies, I, I think personal Bible studies are wonderful. I've always enjoyed giving Bible studies. You get to meet wonderful people. It's not near as hard as you think. Once you've been there a few times, they become like friends. And, you know, just like getting together, you know, they're great. But the fact is, many of our church members do not know their Bibles. Many are, struggle in their spiritual life. And they're not really prepared to lead another person to Christ. In fact, if they were to go out there and knock on a Jehovah Witnesses door or a Mormon's door or someone like that, they themselves would pro might very well get stumped by questions. They just don't know how to answer. And they might even get confused. I, I think many of our members are not really ready to do that. And the reason you get up and have a Bible worker training class, the reason you have you know, just a fraction of your church members will come to that is because many of the members just do not feel ready to do it. Or they may feel afraid to do it. Any of you and you're kind of nervous at the thought of going out and knocking on a door? You know, no one really enjoys that. I mean, it's okay once you get out there, but it's like, oh, knocking on doors, oh, force myself, you know. You know what I'm talking about? And, and I just think maybe we're eventually going to have the vast majority of our church members just going out, knocking on doors. Maybe, that, maybe that'll happen. But uh, I don't think that this is the engine either. Now, when you look in the New Testament, you do find a few incidences of personal Bible study. Take, for example, Philip talking with the Ethiopian, studying the book of Isaiah, and the guy hops right up in the, in the carriage with him and gives him a Bible study, and he's baptized right on the spot. I mean, that's a powerful story of a personal Bible study. And you certainly have public evangelism. You have Paul preaching, and usually he ended up getting arrested or stoned or, you know, kicked out of the city or something like that. But, you know, he was definitely doing public evangelism. There's no question about it. So both of these have their place. But 
there's a quote in Christian Service on page 68. It says, The work of God on this earth can never be finished until the men and women comprising our church membership rally to the work and unite their efforts with those of ministers and church leaders. In other words, the work is never going to be finished until the majority, the vast majority of our members are somehow actively involved in evangelism. I have come to the conclusion that it was neither public evangelism nor personal Bible studies that was the primary engine of evangelism in the New Testament church. You're in Acts chapter 2. Think about this for just a second. You have Jesus had spent three and a half years with the 12 disciples, traveling around together like a tight-knit family. That was like a family. They ate together, they slept together, they worked together, they talked together, traveled around. They were constantly together for three and a half years. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with, what? One accord in one place. These men had come to such a, a state of unity and love and fellowship that God was able to bless their relationship with one another. Now, notice that word relationship. He was able to bless their relationship with one another in such a powerful way that the Holy Spirit was poured out and we have what we call Pentecost. You remember the story? Peter preached this powerful sermon. I'm not going to go through it. Many people were convicted. They said, what do we have to do to be saved? They said, repent, be baptized, so on. And 3,000 souls were added to the church. You can read that in verse 41. Now, if you're one of these 12 disciples... And all of a sudden, you have 3,000 new believers, brand new believers, just suddenly flock into Advent Hope. You've got 3,000 people coming in the back of the church. They don't know hardly anything about Christianity, except they've made a decision to follow Christ. What would you do? Well, if you read the next few verses, you begin to get a feel for what the disciples did. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42. Describing these new believers, it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and, notice the next word, fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. Not just teaching the word, but they were spending time together in fellowship. They were eating meals together. They were enjoying, they were praying together. They were enjoying relationship with one another. Do you notice that? Verse 43. Fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were what? together and had all things common. These new believers became like one big family. They, they, they were close, so close together. Everything they had, and what's mine is yours. What's yours is mine. We're, we're all in this together. It's not like we each do our own little thing and we just pop out of the jack-in-the-box on Sabbath morning and then we go back into our world. It wasn't like they were living their lives together in fellowship, in communion, in relationship with one another. Verse 45, they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. What does this sound like to you? Does this sound like something we do today? Well, yeah, we, we put some money in the offering plate and, and we support community services and, and whatever and, and we help people out when we can't share. But, but I get the picture that there's more going on here than just putting a few dollars in the offering plate. I mean, they were selling everything that they had and giving it to whoever had need. There were no needs in the New Testament church. Do we have needs in our church today? Yeah, there's people in our churches that have needs. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread. And notice the next phrase. From house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. This phrase, house to house, I don't believe it means that they were going from door to door. That's sort of how we equate that sometimes in our mind. But I believe it means that the disciples 
So we got all these believers. We need to start meeting in homes. Some people here, some people here, some people there. And I imagine the disciples, every night of the week, they're in a different home somewhere. They're meeting in the believers' homes. It's in the believers' home from house to house. Not just going door to door to strangers that we don't know, even know from Adam. We're, we're talking about the Christians were getting together in homes. And they were spending time together in prayer, in Bible study. They're having a meal together. They're enjoying in fellowship. They were sharing. They knew what their needs were. Just a group of people hanging, sitting around the living room. And the belief, this, is, this became the foundation for the New Testament church. When Christians got together, they would start meeting in homes for small groups. And they experienced such a level of fellowship, such a level of family. This is what the disciples had experienced. This is what they encouraged the new Christians to experience. And you know, I believe that this is why people were so attracted to the early Christians. They would say something like, uh, you know, their friend, their co-worker, and say, hey, why don't you come over to our place tonight? We're going to have some of our friends get together, and we're going to have a little Bible study or whatever. Just come join us. We're going to have a meal, whatever. It'll be fun. And say, okay, I'll come. And he would come, and he would see these Christians really caring for one another, really loving one another, see them united and kind and sensitive, and meeting one And they say, I've never seen anything like this. Uh, just like a... Like a, like a magnet, they were drawn to the fellowship, to the love, to the caring that was in these New Testament churches, in these homes, these small group meetings. And they were drawn to it, like, and pretty soon they say, hey, how can I be a part of this? Look at Acts chapter 5. Oh, by the way, I should add uh, verse 47 is the verse that says, The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Not just every Sabbath, but every day. There are little groups meeting every night of the week, and people were joining the church every single day. To me, this is a beautiful picture. Acts chapter 5, verse 42, the last verse in the chapter. This is several verses later. Now there's thousands of Christians all over Jerusalem. It says, daily in the temple, and where? In every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Everywhere, all over Jerusalem, there's little house meetings. A house here, a house here, a house here. Every night of the week, there's groups somewhere that you can go and invite a friend to, and you're going to have a meal, and they're going to have a special time, and, and they're going to be drawn to Christ through the love in that group. Acts chapter 20. This is Paul. He's uh, traveling back to Jerusalem after his second missionary tour. And uh, he stops by Ephesus. I uh, forget exactly where he was, but he calls all the elders from Ephesus to come over and meet with him. And he has a little session with them. And he's reminding them of the things that he taught them while he was there. He's reminding these elders of the most important things. And notice what he says in verse 20, Acts 20, 20. He says, I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you two ways. Again, Publicly and what? From house to house. This is years later. Paul's saying, you know, when I was with you in Ephesus, when I was in this city and that city, what I did was I would teach you publicly on the Sabbath. I would go into the synagogue and everyone would come and I would speak. But every night during the week, where do you think Paul was? In this home, in this home, in this home, in this home. Teaching, sharing, Christ. And, and these little home-based fellowships. These were the building blocks for the New Testament church. I mean, the Christians didn't even own the synagogue they were meeting in. I mean, they just went there to worship, but the, the real Christian activity took place in the homes, house to house, not just a personal Bible study where you knock on a stranger's door and go into their home. That's fine. Not just a, a meeting hall where you rent an auditorium and you invite people to come, and that's fine. 
I mean, you see both those things happening. But the foundation, the engine that was driving evangelism in the New Testament church were these home-based fellowships. These home-based fellowships. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 8. I remember thinking about this. I was starting to study, and some of these ideas were percolating around in my mind. And, and I was talking with the elder that started this church in Australia I mentioned earlier. I'm going to talk a little bit more about it later. And uh, he said, you know, uh, I found an interesting verse here in Acts 8. And he shared it with me, and I looked at it and said, oh, that's interesting. And I just, you know, went on, didn't even think it. And probably it was an hour later, all of a sudden it hit me what he said. And he, it just like hit me. Have you ever had that happen? Someone says something, you just don't get it until an hour later. Wow. And I went back and looked at it. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of what? The church. How did he do it? Entering into, where was the church? They were in the houses. See, that's where, the home, that's where the base of the church was, in the homes. When Paul wanted to attack the church, or Saul wanted to, he would go into the homes. They have a meeting here on Monday night, a meeting here on Tuesday night, a meeting here on Wednesday night. He would go into the homes because that's where the Christians were. You know, the problem is not that we have church buildings. They, they didn't really have church buildings back then. The problem is not that we have them. I'm glad we have buildings that we can meet and have large meetings like this and got all the PA system and the air conditioning. All this is great. The problem is that we expect the Christian life to be lived in the church. The Christian life needs to be lived in our homes. In our homes. When we open our homes to our friends and our co-workers and our neighbors and and our relatives, when we invite people into our homes, this is where the the beauty of Christianity really shines out. It's not when we go and and knock on someone's door and we visit them for an hour a week and they just sort of see that, that side of us that we show and we go out and give a Bible say, yeah, that's fine, but... But when we invite them into our homes and really care for them and, and, and spend time getting to know them, where we open up our lives and they see how we interact with one another and, and the group cares and ministers, when they see that love in the, church, in, in the home, in a, in a home-based fellowship, that's when something clicks in their mind. They say, there's something about these Christians that's different from anything I've ever seen before. Isn't this what Jesus said? Remember in John chapter 13, I don't, I don't know how I missed this. For 20 years, I, it never dawned on me. The power of love to change lives. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. It's like, here's, here's the clue right here. A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. What does the next verse say? By this, by what? by how we love one another, loving one another the same way Christ loved us. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have loved one to another. The way that someone is convicted that Christ is in you is when they see the way you love your brother. And the way they're going to see this, they have to come in to our homes where brothers and sisters in Christ are interacting with one another and they see the difference in our relationships. Jesus said, this is how people will know that you're truly a Christian. This is how people will know that you're truly a follower. They'll see something different by how you interact with one another in your homes. You know the reason that we prefer to come to church, to having Bible studies and small groups in our homes? It's easy to come to church, but it's a sacrifice to open our homes, our privacy, and to invite people into our real lives. That's where we live our real lives, in our homes. But if Christ can take over the home, 
Christ can radiate out of the home through the home life. Uh, man, that, that's, that's where real Christianity is. Isn't it? Isn't it? John chapter 17, he said the same thing, just a little bit different in, in his great prayer. Acts chapter 17, verse 20 and 21. A little bit different phrase, but the same idea. Neither pray I for these alone, talking about the twelve, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That's all of us. He's praying for all of us that believe on Christ. That they all may be what? One. As thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Why does he want us to be one? The rest of the verse, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. When the world sees that we're one, that we're united, we're in one accord. We're in this kind of fellowship that the world cannot understand. When they see that we're one, then the world will know that Christ is the sent of God. I believe that God wants us to get back to this foundational model for evangelism where we open up our homes and we invite fellow believers into our homes, struggling Christians, maybe a, a couple stronger Christians. We have a little group in our home. We're invite, and we start inviting our neighbors and our friends and our classmates and our co-workers and we invite them into our home and they see how we interact in our homes. This uh, church I mentioned is a uh, called Gateway. Maybe some of you have heard of it before. It's in Melbourne, in southern Australia. I've had the chance to go there twice uh, for a couple weeks. Did some meetings over there. They're actually using our FAST program to train every new member that comes into the church. They have an incredible system. It's, it's, it just blows my mind every time I see what they're doing over there. But every time a person's baptized, they put them right into a FAST class. In fact, no one can even take a FAST class unless they're a member of the church. That's like their law. Like You have to be a member to to join this class. And they get them memorizing, teach them how to have a devotional time and help them start growing spiritually. They train them how to be involved in small groups. And then what, what the, as they grow in spiritual maturity, they, they start putting them in small groups. They call them care groups. And they have about a dozen of them all over Melbourne. I had a chance to go to some of these. They're, they're incredible. And these care groups are, are just very simple. Just a, a small group Bible study. They have some prayer. They have a little meal at the beginning. Have a chance to share what's going on in their lives and pray for one another, encourage each other. And that becomes like a family. Now, this is a, a campus church, very much like here. Just a lot of young people that are there for a few years. Many of them come from different parts of Asia to get some training, get some education, and they return. They have no family. They have no relatives. Or, and they just, people, you know, we live in, I hate to say this, but we live in the most disconnected age I think there's ever been in the history of man. And especially in Western countries, we live so individualized, fragmented lives that we're just not connected with people. And people are starving because they're lonely. They're just crying out. And they, and they get involved in these care groups and they come. And I was there, the last time I was there, just to give you an example, I joined a care group on Friday night. They have all their care groups on Friday night. And uh, I kind of wanted to see how they were doing it. And... Uh, and they had a very simple meal, nothing fancy, just get together and have a little meal, and everyone's talking and sharing how their week's been. And then they would go into the living room, and they'd have a, a very simple Bible study. It was like, you know, there's 66 books in the Bible, some are in the Old Testament. I mean, it was a basic stuff. I mean, most, I, I didn't know everyone in the group who was who, you know, but I had my kind of informant was saying, this person's Adventist, this one's not, and kind of filling me in. Half the group was non-Adventist. And uh, anyway, I had a very simple Bible study. I thought, okay, this is great. 
And then uh, we had a little time of sharing. And this particular week, one of the guys in the group, his name was uh, uh, jo- uh, Jim or Joe. I can't remember. I think it was Jim. It, ha- it was his last week. He was transferring from Melbourne up to Sydney to finish his study, to do some graduate study up in Sydney. And it was his last week. So they decided to do something a little different. Instead of just sharing how the week had been and, and to pray for one another, they said, why don't we all share something about Jim? And so they went around the circle. And everyone shared some story... And Jim was a non-Adventist. He wasn't a member of the church. He had been attending there for about a year. And they all shared how they appreciated his, how friendly he was and his smile. And he really was. He came up to me, started talking to me. Just a real friendly guy, nice guy. And, you know, they would all share little things that they remember, different experiences. They had an outing. They would go, you know, to the zoo or whatever. And just little experiences they remember that made an impact that they appreciated about it. And finally got around the circle and they came to Jim. He was the last one. He was uh, born in mainland China. Raised in communism, atheism, evolution, had no Christian background. He had come to Melbourne to study, and uh, he had been there in Melbourne for two years. And he began to share his story a little bit. And he said, you know, I've been here for two years, uh, three years now. And uh, the first two years I was in Melbourne, I didn't have a single friend. And until I came to this care group. And I began to, to meet with you guys, and, and you just loved me. And, and he began to share how they had been his real friends. And this, this tall, strong, Chinese young man, raised in communism, and atheism, he just began to break down and cry right there in the group because he was leaving his friends. Fortunately, there's care groups already started up in Sydney, and they immediately hooked him up with a care group over there. You know, because, and, you know, and I just got an email from Johnny and Tina, the ones that are the elders that lead out in this church, and they said that he just made a decision for baptism. In fact, two of the other young ladies in that care group also made a decision for baptism at their last retreat in in, uh, April or whenever it was. You know, they have a saying over there I thought was really good. Uh, Johnny just came down to our church not too long ago, and he said this in in a sermon. And he said, you know, what we tend to do as Adventists, we say, uh, first got to believe, and then you got to behave, and then we'll let you belong. Don't we say that? You know, if you believe all the right things and you do all the right things, then maybe we'll let you join our church. And listen, people get the message. They get the message. They come in and they may not be dressed the way we think they should be dressed or or may not know what we think they know or may have their own ideas. And they get the message. I don't belong here. But their philosophy at Gateway is they said, if you can get them to belong, they'll begin to believe and they'll start to behave. I'm not saying that you just baptize everyone, they join the church, you know, without knowing anything. But you get them into a care group, and they can belong to that group. And there are people that care for them and love for them and work with them. And they they take ownership of that group. This is their family. These are their friends. They feel safe to come. Pretty soon they're inviting their friends. And, you know, once they begin to feel like they belong, and I believe this is what happened in the New Testament church. They would just start to come. They would see the love of Christ. They'd say, I really like this here. This is interesting. And once they began to feel like they belonged, then they, their heart began to open up to the message. They began to believe. And the word of God, as it was received into the heart, began to produce change in their life. And then they began to behave, you know, to use their expression. If you can make them feel like they belong, they'll begin to believe and they'll start to behave. And I just think we've got this backwards. I think we've got this backwards. You look in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 2. Look at Acts chapter 2 again. I mean, it's such a simple model. There's really not anything complicated about this. Verse 42. Here's their strategy. Four things. They continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They have a Bible study every week. And in fellowship. They have a time for sharing every week. 
breaking of bread. They have a meal every week. And in prayers, they have prayer every meeting. Here's how their care groups go. I, I just described it before. Get together, have a simple meal, a simple Bible study. They share what's going on in their life. I got an upcoming exam. I got an interview for a job. Or they just share, and then they have time where they pray. A couple people pray in the group. They just followed the exact model right there that they were doing in, in Jerusalem. Nothing complicated about it. Let me ask you a question. Um, if I were to ask you, I'm not, I guess I won't ask you to raise your hands, but if I were to ask you how many of you would be nervous about going out and knocking on a stranger's door and trying to get in their home and give them Bible study, you know, how many of you think would raise your hand? Probably a good number in this group. But if uh, I wanted to go over to Paul's house or uh, uh, Sonny and, and uh, Tim's house or, you know, whatever, and, and they're just going to have a simple Bible study, invite some friends, there's going to be a couple of my other friends from church there and maybe a few visitors, how many of you would be nervous about being a part of that? I mean, any of us could do that, right? Any of us could do a simple Bible study. We're not using the care group to indoctrinate them. We're just using it to build a relationship with them. They start to come. They get to know the people in the group. And then pretty soon they're going to come to an evangelistic meeting. Or they're going to start asking questions. And we'll give them Bible studies. That will come. But first you've got to build the relationship with them. Anyone can do this. Anyone can be involved with this. And, and maybe you're just a brand new Christian yourself. Maybe you'll actually learn some of the things from the Bible study. And you'll see how the leaders work and how they interact with non-Christians. You know, it's not something we all do naturally. Some of us have been in the, raised in the church all our life. And we don't even have the faintest idea how to talk to someone outside the church. We don't know what to say. We don't know the language they use. We don't know the topics that they talk. We, 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 and so we have to learn how to do Isn't that true? And, and so you can see this model, and someone comes into the church, and, and they begin to model, imitate the leaders in that group. Pretty soon, they're doing the same kinds of things. Before you know it, they're starting their own care group. They, in, uh, in Gateway, in Australia, they started with three care groups in downtown Melbourne. And within five years, that had gone from 30 members to about 150 members, and they had 12 care groups in the city. Not only that, but because this is a university town, Many of the members of that church are students. Most of them are students. In fact, almost all of them are students. About 80% are under 30. Many of them graduate, finish their studies, and go back home. And they have lost scores of their leaders that have gone back, and they've started care groups all over Asia and China and Hong Kong and Malaysia and Singapore and just all up and down Asia. And, and they've still been able to maintain this rate of growth. Not only that, but one of their mission goals was to plant a new church every three years. Five years into this strategy, they've already planted one church, it's thriving. They've started a second church, and they're making plans for a third church. This is all in five years. The, the Lord is blessing. And you know what the most amazing thing to me is? And I don't mean to just boast about this church, but my heart was thrilled when I saw this. Because when you go into this church, about 70, I think it was 50 or 60% of the church members are actively giving Bible studies every week. You know how they get their Bible studies? Someone in the care group. You know, it's someone they already know, someone they're already friends with, and they start asking questions. Well, why do you guys go to church on Saturday? Why do you do this or that? And say, well, we really don't have time to study that here, but someone would be happy to meet with you. Would you like someone to come and study out with you in your, in your dorm room or whatever? So, yeah, sure. And it just starts. Some of them are, many of the church members have two, three, four baptisms under their belt, and they've just joined the church themselves a year ago or two years ago. And almost all the growth has been from outside the church. It's not been transfers. Uh, when you come in, it's just amazing what you see. Their whole Sabbath school, 
is transformed into a training environment. They have different levels of training for everywhere, the spiritual babe or disciple, worker, all kinds of levels. They even have what they call the babysitting class for transfers that come in that just haven't really understood what Gateway is all about. They have another class, just take care of them over there. But you know what the biggest class is in Gateway? They have a discoverer's class, which is for people that are studying for baptism. When I went there on Sabbath morning, probably 30 or 40 members studying for baptism every Sabbath morning. And then they had an explorer's class. This is for people that don't know anything about God. They, they're not even sure they believe in the Bible or anything, and they have a whole other class for them. Or another 10 or 15 people. It's, this was the most thrilling thing I think I've seen since I've been an Adventist. To see a church that is combining evangelism with training. And the way they do their evangelism is these care groups, meeting in homes, inviting people in to the fellowship and the love and the support. Let me draw a picture real quickly. Here's, here's sort of their strategy. Think of evangelism as a funnel with three different sections. And tell me if this doesn't make sense. We have a lot of contact kinds of outreach events. We pass out literature, we do surveys, we hold a seminar, maybe have a guest speaker come in, uh, do a cooking school, a health expo. Uh, you can think of all kinds of things, right? We give out DVDs, right? all kinds of different events to make contact with people. And we have what we call the uh, communication stage. This is where we're actually systematically going through Bible doctrines so that a person can make an intelligent decision for Christ. It may be a public evangelistic campaign. It may be personal Bible studies. But we have various methods where we lead a person point by point into uh, a knowledge of our faith so they can make a decision for baptism. Do you think there's anything between these two? We're making all these contacts, and then we're trying to get them into... There's a, a big stage cultivation, where we take those contacts and we begin to cultivate a relationship with them. Most people are not ready to, to jump from a door-to-door -door survey into a 24-week set of Bible studies. They're not going to immediately come from a health expo or a cooking school into an evangelistic series and understand what the mark of the beast is. Most people are not ready to make that jump. There's a few, and praise God that there's a few that are ready, and, and so we're getting just a little teeny tiny bit of growth because we're skipping this but what if you could take someone that had just been to a cooking school and say, hey, we have a get-together on Friday nights and we serve vegetarian meals. Why don't you come and just try the food? We have a little Bible study get-together. It'll be fun. You'll enjoy it. And for, they may be a little nervous, but they're more likely to come to something like that and say, hey, this is, this is, I enjoy this. This is great. You know, and they get to know friends, and pretty soon they start asking questions. You know, someone will mention something about death, or they'll ask a question. Say, well, you know, we can get together with the outside of our care group and have a little Bible study, and we'll just little Q&A session or whatever, and we'll study it out. Great. And pretty soon, they're starting to learn the message. You know, one, one day the church holds an evangelistic series, and they announce in the care group, oh, by the way, we got this guest speaker that's going to be coming, and he's going to be doing these. Oh, it's going to be great. You ought to come. And so they bring all their friends. I mean, it's just when you build the relationship, it suddenly becomes natural to go from contact to communication. But if there's no cultivation, the contacts don't get communicated. I, I grew a garden back home. My wife and I and our daughter, we grow a garden every year. We try to. And uh, I enjoy the sowing stage. I, I enjoy going out and tilling up the garden and making the beds and planting the seeds. And it just looks so beautiful. And I enjoy the reaping stage. 
I like going out there and picking the tomatoes and slicing it and making a sandwich, fresh tomatoes right out of the garden or, or peppers or whatever. I love the sowing and I love the reaping. But you know, if there's no cultivation of the garden in between the sowing and the reaping, there is no reaping. I mean, you may get one or two tomatoes if you plow your way through all the grass that grows up and all the weeds, but you're not going to get a harvest if you don't cultivate. And see, churches, we like to do sowing events, and we like to do reaping events, but where does the real work of evangelism take place? It's in the cultivation. It's in building the relationships. It's in getting to know people and getting them to know that you, that you care, that you love them, that you're willing to serve them. And when you win their confidence, when you win their trust, when, when they begin to feel like, this is my group, I belong here, then their heart begins to open to the gospel. Let me share with you, oh my, how, where did time fly? It's like it's gone. Can I take five more minutes? Do you mind if I give five more minutes? Let me share with you a real quick illustration that they're using over at Gateway. Motive. If you want to learn to build relationships with people in your care group, this is like one of the most important skills you can learn. And this word motive is an acronym for different methods that you can use to build relationships with people in your care group. And not in any order except it spells a word. That's the only reason. But first one is mail. Find out when their birthday is. If they're married, find out when their anniversary is, whatever, and send them a card. If you go on vacation, send a postcard. You know, get to know the people in your group and, and use the post office to, to communicate with them. It's a powerful way. It's very simple. It doesn't cost anything. My wife does this all the time. She's always sending cards to someone. And I can't tell you how many times someone has come and said, you know, you sent me that card just when I needed it most, just when I was going through a difficult time. And, and we need to be spirit-led so we can send a card. People will appreciate it. You know, we, we get so caught up in our life, we're not thinking about people. But when we send a card, it says, I was thinking about you. I, I care about you. You're important to me. Outings. You know, if you want to build relationships with people, go do some things together. Go, I, I don't know what kind of things. You can go up to the mountain, take a hike, or, or I don't know if you're close enough to the ocean, go down and take a stroll, or, or go to the zoo, or whatever you guys do out here. Just do something together as a care group. Say, hey, why don't we all get together Sabbath afternoon? Or we're going to have a meal. We're going to take a hike. We're going to go do some kind of activity. Do an outing together. It's not just 60 minutes every Friday night or 90 minutes every Friday night, and then the rest of the time we're gone. No, we're, we're, it's about building relationships. That means you have to do outings, things to, to get to know people. And they may come to the outing and not come to the care group, but that's okay because you're building relate. Eventually they'll come. Telephone. You know, we all live such wired lives these days. Our cell phone, I haven't heard any cell phones going off while I was here. That's a, a miracle. Usually there's, you know, but you know, just give them a quick ring. Say, hey, how's it going? I was thinking about you. And hey, I know you had your job interview. How, how'd it go? I, I want you to know I was praying for you. It doesn't have to be a long phone call. Just a, a quick check. And just how you doing? I was thinking about you. You're important. Little things like this make a difference. Make a point of calling them every so often just to see how they're doing. Internet. One of the things they do at Gateway is uh, at the end of each care group, the leader will take down all the prayer requests and they'll send out an email of all the prayer requests to the different team members so they can pray for each other during the week. And maybe you'll, you'll find a, a little verse in, that was encouraging to you and you can send out a little note to someone in the group. Say, hey, I was thinking about you this week. I know you're having this challenge. This promise really encouraged me. It doesn't have to be long. Right? Our inboxes are just full, but you can send a little something here, a little something there. And even if they don't read it, they, they see your name in the return line and they know you were thinking about them and, and you sent them something. You know, we can learn to use the Internet to communicate with people. 
you know, people nowadays, uh, uh, having to learn some of this stuff myself, use Facebook and MySpace and this kind of stuff. So this is important to some people. And you know how much it would mean to them if you actually went to their MySpace page or their Facebook page and left a comment or left a, hey, how you doing? I just came by to see your plate, whatever, your, your profile. You know, little things like that make a difference. This is how we connect with people. This is how we build bridges, relationships. This is evangelism, friends. This is evangelism. It's how you win someone's heart. Visits. Visit them in their home. I was just in the neighborhood, thought I'd stop in and see how things were going or invite them over to your home. And, and uh, just, you know, there's something about going into someone's home that you learn something about them you can't find any other way. You know, when, when I have... I meet people like this, but when I invite someone into my home, it's a different relationship. Something has changed the relationship when they come into my home and I go into their home. And, you know, we have to be sensitive. You know, so their house may be a disaster or whatever, but, you know, find opportunities to, to visit them. Just stop by and, and bring them something. Hey, I, I, you know, I got a loaf of bread. You know, my, my wife made some bread. I thought I'd drop you off a loaf. I was over in this part of town, whatever. Make up an excuse. Whatever you got to do just to visit them and, and invite them into your home. You know, hey, why don't you come over to my place and we'll do something on Tuesday night or whatever. Visits in the home. It's, it's powerful. And then the last one is uh, evangelism. Even if they're not a member of the church, you can say, uh, we're going to go pass out cards this week and invite people to our care group. Or we're going to have a, we have a guest speaker at Advent Hope and we're going to invite everyone we can. Why don't you come and you can help. And, or, you know, get them involved. You don't want them to, excuse me, you don't want them to feel like uh, they're an outsider. They're a part of the group. Get them involved in whatever kind of, a, and you know, Ellen White, uh, in, in one of the testimonies she talked about visiting this man, had kind of left the church. She began to talk to him like he was a member, like he was active in the church, and I think gave him some books or something to sell. And, and, and he came back into the church just because she treated him like he was a part of the church. So, hey, we're going to be doing some, some outreach this afternoon. We're all going to get together, and it's going to be fun. Why don't you come join us and get them to feel like they belong? Remember, if you can get them to feel like they belong, they'll begin to believe, and pretty soon they'll start to behave. It's all about loving one another. It's all about caring. When I look at the New Testament church, yes, there are personal Bible studies going on. No doubt about it. Yes, there's public evangelism. It, it happened, uh, usually with <laughs> pretty shocking results, but it was going on. But the thing that I see is the primary engine that goes right from beginning to end all the way through the New Testament is using homes for evangelism, families, making people a part of, to, to feel the love and the harmony and the unity. And, and if we can learn some of these basic skills to just cultivate relationships, build bridges, build connections, I believe that our evangelism can be, begin to be successful and effective. And so I want to challenge you again I know I've been trying to challenge you this whole Sabbath, but I want to challenge you one more time. Get involved. They're starting some care groups. They mentioned that this morning. I don't know if they got the same name from Australia or someone else came up with the name, but, but this is one of the most beautiful things that you can do. If you want to be effective in ministry, plug into a care group. Please, it's, it'll be the best thing you can do for your spiritual life. It's one of the most effective ways that you can invite others to join your group. What if everyone here joined a care group? Can you imagine? You have care groups all over the campus. And then you start inviting your friends, and, and pretty soon it's just going to spread from dorm to dorm, and apartment to apartment, home to home. God could do some mighty things, but we've got to learn to care. We've got to learn to love. It's not about methods. It's not about brochures or, or the Bible. It's about genuinely caring for people. And, uh, and this is really what discipleship's all about. 
In 1 Timothy 1.5, it says, Now the end of the commandment is charity. Out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and a faith unfeigned, something like that. Charity, that's the goal, that's the purpose of being a Christian, is to have the love of Christ reproduced in our heart. The love of Christ constrains us. And I believe that if we will learn to love one another, God will bless us. Amen? Amen. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. If any of you have questions, I'll be happy to stick around for a half hour or whatever, and we can just meet up here in the front. I'll be happy to answer your questions. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we look at the love of Christ as revealed in the cross, and our hearts marvel. But we know that you've called us to follow his example. To love may mean sacrifice, sacrifice of time or resources or energy, emotional energy. But you've called us to the same kind of sacrifice and, and love for one another. Help us to do it, Lord. Help us to give ourselves to your cause. And may there be fruit all over this campus. Change lives, people that are just one right into the church and right into a life of fidelity and integrity. I pray for Advent Hope and the leaders here that your blessing would be on this little group. And we thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.